you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter this morning, we are going through the letter to 1 Peter, and we find ourselves at chapter 3, verse 8. So if you can find that passage, I'll read the section. We provide the overhead, but that doesn't mean you can stop bringing your Bibles. Don't you dare stop bringing your Bibles. If you stop bringing your Bibles, I'm going to take it off the screen. First Peter 3, 8. To sum, all, sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil, insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, to love, to see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there that would harm you? if you prove zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidations. Do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which You are slandered. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Lord, as we open our hearts to you this morning, to your word, may we be careful to hear, but not only hear, but to listen in such a way that... um, It makes a difference in how we respond to this sinful world we're living in. We're so blessed to have your word. And we want to yield ourselves to all that it says. May the power of the Holy Spirit speak through these wonderful verses that we've read in Jesus' name. Amen. From the years uh, 1993 through 2001, we had what was called the Teflon president. You remember, Mr. Clinton. Now, Mr. Clinton, whether you're Democrat or Republican, will agree that he got himself in a lot of messes, but he seemed like Teflon. Nothing ever stuck to that character. He just came out looking okay. And even now, today, whether you're Democrat or Republican, you have to kind of wonder at him because he's kind of like the premier senior uh, statesman for the Democratic Party, and he gets speaking engagements all over the world. The Teflon president. Now, those of us who believe the Bible, we've always kind of believed what? If you do good, you get good. You know, what goes around comes around. If you do bad or evil, you bring that on yourself also. Isn't that true? We've always believed that. Galatians 6, 7, and 8, whatever a man sows, this he will reap. We believe that. And generally, that's true. 
However, there are exceptions. Well, wait a minute. What do you, what do you mean, Pastor Dan? Well, think about it. Think about Abel. He was a good man. He gave a good testimony, but he ended up getting murdered by his own brother. Think about some of the other people in the Bible. Joseph, man, what a great man. He was a great manager of Potiphar's household. (laughs) He ended up in jail. Job, he was a righteous man, but he had many, many troubles. Jeremiah, we just finished studying his his, uh, book a few weeks ago, and we saw that Jeremiah was a faithful prophet for God's word, amen? But he got dragged down to Egypt and died there. John the Baptist spoke the truth, but he lost his head. And finally, Jesus, he's sinless, but they ended up crucifying him. So, when you do good, the general way of looking at it is there is rewards, there's blessing, and we'll see that in the passage but also there's exceptions. And I want to talk to you about that this morning because that's exactly what our passage is talking about, doing good and the results thereof. And both all you've seen that in your life, haven't you? You've done good and been blessed and yet you've done good and then been either persecuted or suffered harm because of what you've done. How do you understand how this all works? Let's take a look. Peter's going to talk about doing good and he'll explain what that happens there but he'll also talk about the exception when you do good and you suffer because of it. Let's take a look at verse 8. He says, to sum up. Well, what do you mean to sum up? Well, it kind of sum up. You have to go back just a couple of chapters. Now, remember as we've been looking at 1 Peter, the first part of chapter 1 deals with how good God is. Then beginning in chapter 2 he begins to talk about some very specific attitudes. Remember, we had looked about them. I called them our old friends that keep showing up in our lives. And we're to put these aside. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. That's 2, chapter 2, verse 1. Remember, we talked about that. And then, beginning in verse 11, chapter 2, he begins to talk about circumstances or situations that put us under tension where we'd have a tendency perhaps to do what he says we shouldn't do in chapter 2 verse 1. Remember we had talked about how we deal with our unbelieving friends. We talked about submitting ourselves to maybe a pagan government. We talked about submitting ourselves to our employers. And then last week we talked about being submissive to one another in the marriage relationship. Then in verse 8, he kind of, he says, sums up. In all that I've said, now I'm going to sum up. I want you to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Okay, we'll get back to that in just a minute. But look at verse 9. He gives us what we call the SOP. So you're saying SOP. Well, all of those of us who have been in the military means that's standard operating procedures. Standard operating procedures. What's the standing opera, standard operating procedure? No matter what's going on, whether you're having a good time, whether it's bad, whether it, whatever it is going on, in any and all cases, here's the SOP. You're not to return evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing. 
That's the standard operating procedure in whatever situation you find yourself as a Christian. That's where he begins to talk about doing good. Now, Paul kind of even expands on that. Most of us are familiar with Romans chapter 12. Let me read verses 14 and following. He kind of covers it the same idea, but he gives us a little bit more information. Look what he says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He he gives a little bit of an expanded version of what Peter is saying here and the same thing. So, there's the standard operating procedure. And then, in verse 8, if we just go back, what he said in verse 8 about being harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble, he gives us the attitude which enables us to do verse 9 in the first part of verse 9. Do you see that? In other words, if you are If you have that attitude in yourself, verse 8, you're able to do what? Not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing. That's what he's saying. Now, it's interesting. In chapter 3, verse 8, he names five positive Christian values. Amen? That's in contrast to chapter 2, verse 1 which gives almost the exact opposite spirit. Listen to this. Put aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Five old friends that we don't want to have hanging around our lives. But rather, put those off and put these on. That's what he says to sum up. Now, these five qualities... Uh, I wanted to take a look for just a minute at them, and I looked them up in the in the originals, and I wanted to kind of give you expanded translation, but it's going to be really difficult because they only most of the words only appear either once here in the in the New Testament or once somewhere else. The first word is harmonious, and it means to be agreeable. To be harmonious is to be agreeable, but the idea is here that being agreeable to somebody who's holding a view that's different from you. Being the kind of person that's not always having to set everybody straight because they're not thinking exactly like you. Being (laughs) harmonious, that's what it means. Nobody likes to be around somebody who's always setting everybody straight in line with their own thing. Be harmonious. Be sympathetic. Like harmonious, it only appears here in the New Testament, no other place. 
And it means to be sympathy, sympathetic, but in such a way that it affects you. I mean, it's easy to say, well, I have sympathy for you, but if it has no real effect on how you treat those people, that's not what the word means. It means having sympathy so much so that it kind of affects how you deal with people. Sympathetic. The next one is brotherly. This is a very common word. It means to be a friend. Be a friend. Sometimes I tell the definition of a definition of a friend is a person who accepts you as you are. He doesn't have an agenda. Now I'll get close to this person, and then I'll start to change them. That's not a friend. <laughs> Many times that's a problem. Brotherly. That's a very common word. That's used several times in the New Testament. Kind-hearted. Kind-hearted. Now this is only used one other place, and it's in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, verse 31. And I thought I might read it because it has some implication here. Paul writes, Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander, sounds like chapter 2, verse 1, be put away from you along with all malice. It's almost the same, he's almost saying the same thing. But be kind to one another, there it is, tender-hearted, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. It means to be compassionate. Compassionate. When you see somebody having difficulty, it's not like you're saying, well, they probably, they brought it on themselves. They deserve it. That's not being kind-hearted. Humble in spirit. This is only used here in the, no other place in the New Testament, just humble in spirit. And what it means is humility permeates everything that you do. It's not just humble, I'm humble here, but it permeates every aspect of your life. Okay. He says, if we are that way, if that is our attitude, and we're growing in that, we have the ability not to return evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing. Then, in the second half of verse 9, he says he gives us the purpose. Look what it says. For you were called for this very purpose. Here's the purpose that we are called. God called us that you might inherit a blessing. That's the purpose. I don't want you to return evil for evil or insult for insult because you, Christian, were called for this purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now this is interesting. We think, Well, yeah, we do those things so we might be a blessing. No, he's already talked about us being a blessing. He says, if you do these things, you will inherit a blessing. What is he talking about? Well, we know that if we accept Christ, we're going to be blessed when we go to heaven. Okay, okay, that's, that's not what he's talking. He's talking about life here on this old planet. We live, as he says in verses 8 and 9, we will inherit a blessing. And it has two expressions. And he quotes from Psalm 34 from the Hebrew scriptures to help us understand what that blessing is. It has two aspects. First, notice what it says. If you desire life, real life, love 
and good days. Now, what did Jesus say? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came to give you life and life more abundantly. Life. If you want that, you must. And he, then he repeats himself, going, kind of going all the even going back to verse 9. You must keep your tongue from evil, his lips from deceit. You must turn away from evil, do good, and he must seek peace and pursue it. So if we want life, love, and good days, we do verses 8 and the first part of verse 9. Then he gives the second part of the blessing, and that has to do, so you have kind of like life, love, good days, okay? But then he begins to talk about the spiritual aspect of our lives, the spiritual aspect. And look what he says. For the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, and his ears attend to their their prayer, and his face is turned towards us, because he says in the latter half of verse 12, once again quoting from Psalm 34, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, I don't know of anybody who wants the face of the Lord against them. So here's the blessing he's going to give us. He is going to give us life, love, and good days. And the the eyes and the ears of the Lord and the face will be directed towards us. And that, that talks about our whole spiritual life, the life that we have with Jesus. This is the blessing that we inherit. Okay, so he's given us the purpose. Then in verse 13, he gives us the principle. Here's the general principle. Here's the general principle. It is this. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now, we'll look at the... There is an exception, but generally speaking, living in a good world, most of the time, if we do good, who's going to be against you? They're going to be for you. Isn't that true? There's, there's, there's basic things of life that you can do that will keep your life from being really messed up. Isn't that true? I tell people, I tell especially the young people, I say, you know, after one o'clock in the morning, you want to come home. You don't want to be out in the freeways driving out in the streets at one o'clock. Why is that? I have the freedom. I am a Christian. Yeah, you do, but there's a lot of drunks out (laughs) and a lot of accidents happen on the freeway. There's a lot of people doing stupid things after one o'clock in the morning. Isn't that true? Sure there is. You don't want to go to bars. Don't hang around bars. You know why? Because there's people with guns and knives who go to bars and get drunk and they stab and shoot each other. That happens. Read the paper. It happens pretty regularly, doesn't it? Don't go to bars. Go to church a couple of times a week. Nobody, most, almost nobody brings a gun or a knife to church. <laughs> We're not shooting each other. It's a good place to be. Don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. You drive people away from you if you're selfish. You're always thinking about yourself. Hang around people that bring the best out of you. If you got some friend who's, you know, every time you're with him or her, you find yourself doing something stupid, then don't hang around with that person. You find yourself at the wrong place at the wrong time. 
don't ever, don't always try to set people straight. Don't be so opinionated. You can hold your opinions, but maybe you need to hold them to yourself. Because <laughs> oftentimes you'll drive people away from you. Just See, there's just some simple things that make life a little easier. I came across this. The Internet's a wonderful thing. All I really need to know I learned in kindergarten. Do you remember that? Let me read a few of the things. Here's some stuff they teach in kindergarten, and it, it applies to all of life. Share a lot. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush the toilet. (laughs) Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Learn some and think some and draw and paint, sing and dance and play and work every day. Take a nap every afternoon. When you go out in the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. Be be aware of wonder. Remember the little seed in the styrofoam cup? The roots go down, the plant goes up, and nobody really knows how or why, but we all are like that. Goldfish and hamsters and white mice, and even the little seed in the styrofoam cup, they all die. And so do we. Everything you need to know is in that list. The golden rule, love, basic sanitation, ecology, politics, and equality, and sane living. Take one of these items and extrapolate it into the sophisticated adult terms and apply it to your family life or your work or your government or your world and it holds true and clear and firm. I love the way he ends. And he says, Think what a better world it would be if the whole world, all of us, had cookies and milk around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and then we laid down with our blankies for a nap. (laughs) Or if our government had a basic policy to always put things back where they found them and clean up their own mess. Some awesome truths there. Doing good, he kind of explains it. He explains what doing good is in verses 8 and 9. Then, however, he goes to the exception in verses 14 through 17. And here's where the exception comes into play. Let's read verse 14. But if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness... So there are times when you're doing what's right and you will suffer. Not all the time, but it is an exception and it takes place. Now some people think, well, you know, um, God doesn't send or doesn't allow uh, evil to come into people's lives. You're a Christian, you're you're God's kids and everything goes wonderful. Well, really? We'll take a peek at a verse in chapter 4, verse 19, the next chapter over. It says, Therefore, those who, here it is, guys, suffer according to the will of God. (laughs) 
So there are things that come into our lives and it is the will of God. Okay, so let's just put that whole idea that Christians don't suffer if you have faith. That's not true. We can suffer if we have faith. Now, the exception is found in verses 14, but also says in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Suffer persecution. Now, why is that? Now, remember in verse 13, it says, who is there to harm you? If, if we live in, in most cases, many times when we're the kind of person that goes about doing good as is described in verses 8 through 12, most people will respond positively to us. However, we don't live in a perfect world, do we? we where this world is filled with what? Sinful, unrighteous people. And when you stand for righteousness, you get in their way. You get in their way. And they don't like it. And they have no scruples. And they will turn on you. Isn't that true? That's what he's saying. They'll turn on you. That's what happens. Now, notice what he says is the result. (laughs) But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You just told me I'd be blessed if I did good. Now we're going to be blessed if we, if we suffer for doing good? That's right. You say, how does that work? How, how are we blessed? How are we blessed if we're doing good and we're suffering for it? Well, think about it. There's a couple of verses. Romans chapter 5 says that when we have troubles, it causes us to have character. It, it births in us Character. So when you suffer for doing good, it births in you a strength of character. In James chapter 1, it says what? It births in us what? Endurance. So we don't become flake and run away every time everything gets hard. It builds in us endurance. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, that they persecuted, if you're suffering from doing righteousness, they persecuted the prophets. So guess what? You're standing with some pretty good people. When you're suffering for doing right, you're standing right with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, all those guys. You're you're right in there. You're included in their company. Now, Colossians, this is an interesting verse and often troubles people, so I thought I'd bring it up just so the next time you read Colossians chapter 1, you won't freak out. Colossians comes right after Philippians. Colossians chapter 1. Here it is. See, I bring my Bible to church. (laughs) Verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up the afflictions which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Does that mean that Jesus didn't fully suffer enough on the cross? No. What it's saying is the church is his body. We're here on this earth, okay? And when we suffer because of doing good, we are taking what Jesus would have taken if he was here. That's what it means. It's not like Jesus didn't suffer enough on the cross. He suffered enough. He paid for the 
the sins of all the, all the world. Okay, He suffered that, but when we're here and we're suffering for doing right, we are receiving what he would have received if he had been here, but we are his body. Okay. So we are blessed. We're blessed by all of those. Then in verses 14, the second half of verses 14 through 17, he gives us our response. Our response. Well, what should we do? What should we do when we're doing what's right and we're suffering for it? Well, he tells us. He's got some things that need to take place inside of us and then he's got some outward behavior. Let's look at that which takes place deeply inside us. First thing he says, if you're suffering for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed, and then verse 14b, and do not fear their intimidation. There's the first one. Don't fear their intimidation. And what they'll try and do is they'll try and intimidate us because can I see the hands of all the people who want to suffer this morning? Is there anybody here who's really looking forward to suffering? Yeah, well, no, we don't want to suffer. And so they'll use that against us to stop us, to try and stop us from doing what's right. Don't, don't be all fearful because of their intimidation. They'll try to intimidate us and stop us. Now, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says what? Christ, when he was looking at the cross, he wasn't looking forward to the cross, but what? He endured the cross for the what? The joy that was set before him. He was able to look past that which was difficult because he was looking for you and the salvation that he would bring throughout the whole world. And that enabled him to get through the pain of the cross and the suffering that he felt. Now, I remember years ago when we were sitting in front of abortion clinics and uh, the police began to arrest us. They began to drag us off to jail. And we sat, used to sing this song. Paul and Silas went to jail, had no money for the bail. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. And we would sing that song as they were taking away our brothers and sisters. To take, Hold on, keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eye on the prize. That will get you through the difficulties. Don't be, don't fear their intimidation. They'll try to shut you down. Don't let it grip your heart. Keep your eye on the prize. Then the second thing he says, and don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. This is different. What he's talking about is... Don't question your own actions if they're right just because everybody else is doing something screwy. Just because the crowd is going left doesn't mean you have to go left. If the Lord has told you you're, going, you're to stand for righteousness, you need to go right. See, this world, everything's about polls. Have you noticed as we come up to the election, they take a poll every day to see how, who's where and what's happening and left or right and... Um, we're always wondering, which way is the wind blowing? Because that's the way I want to go. No. Don't be troubled by their unrighteousness. You know what's right. You stand. Even if everybody else is going left. Then look at the um, first part of 15. Here, here's, here's, here's a good one. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. What does that mean? That means what? Set apart 
Christ as Lord. And that is the determining factor. If Christ is Lord in your life, that determines how everything else is going. Now, in your bulletin, we have that little uh, little uh, two circles there. Now, for those of us who are Catholics, who are ex-Catholics, those little dots aren't uh, mortal or venial sins. They, they represent something else. So I just wanted to clear that up. Now, on the left-hand side, on the left-hand side is what we call a self-directed life. See that? Self is on the chair or the throne of life. You're directing your life. The cross, you notice the cross is outside, effectively outside the life. Okay? The interest, the little dots, are directed by self, often resulting in discord and frustration. When you're on the throne and Christ is not set apart, he's not on the throne, life many times doesn't make any sense. Okay, that's on the left. Now, on the right-hand side, the Christ-directed life. This is from um, Four Spiritual Laws, Campus Crusade for Christ, or what they call crew now. Is the Christ-directed life. Notice who's sitting in the chair. Who's sitting on the throne? The cross. Christ is in the life and on the throne. Okay? Then notice S is at the footstool. Self is yielded to Christ. The interests are directed by Christ, resulting in harmony with God's plan. I love this little little illustration. It's so poignant. It's so true. He says, set apart Christ as Lord in your life. Now, here's two questions I didn't include in your bulletin. Which circle best represents your life? Ooh. Which circle represents your life? Next question is, which circle would you like to have represent your life? Pretty good questions. Okay. So there's the inward responses. The external responses in verses 15 through 17. Look at first 15, second half of verse 15. Set up our crisis, Lord, in your heart. And here it is. Be ready to make a defense. Be ready to make a defense. For everyone who asks you of the hope that's in you, be ready to make a defense. You should be able to explain to somebody why you're doing what you're doing from the Bible. Why are you doing that? What's happening here? Why, why did you say that? Well, because Philippians chapter 3, uh, Colossians chapter 1, uh, Revelation chapter 2... Boom, boom, boom. You should be able to make a defense, to explain your actions, explain the Christian point of view. In the world, in the politics, and all that's going around, you should be able to explain from the Bible why you're doing what you're doing. Now, it's not good enough to say, well, my pastor says, <laughs> not good enough. It's very nice that you listen to your pastor, but you should have the conviction within your heart and your own knowledge to explain from the Bible why you're doing what you're doing. Not just your pastor says. Many years ago, before I was a, a Christian, well over 40 years ago, I was trying to develop a relationship with a married lady 
whose husband was overseas in the armed services. And she said, no. And I said, why not? And she says, because if my pastor finds out, I'll kill, he'll kill me. <laughs> that was enough for her, but it really it said nothing to me about why she was doing what she was doing. We need to be able to make a defense from our own minds based on what the scriptures say about what we're doing. Now, notice the qualifications. Verse 15, second half. It says, being ready to make a defense, we've talked about that, to everyone who asks you. Now, if they ask you, if they ask you, that means they saw something. In other words, they wouldn't have asked you, why are you doing that, unless they saw you doing something that kind of said, oh, why is he doing that? Everybody else is doing this. Why is so-and-so doing that? You see, you have to be doing something in order to be asked the question. Now, here's a question. If they were arresting people for being Christians... Is there enough evidence in your life that you could be convicted? Let me say that again. If they're arresting people for being Christian, is there enough evidence in your life that you would be convicted of being a Christian? Only you can answer that question. But we are to make a defense, and the reason we're going to make a defense is because they asked us, and the reason they asked us, they saw something different in our lives than all the lost people in this world. Now, the second qualification of making a defense is yet, notice what it says, yet with gentleness and reverence. Gentleness and reverence. I think of a scripture in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.24. Look what it says. This is Paul's writing. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in a position, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive to do his will. Notice the qualifications. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness. Peter says the same thing. We are to give a defense with gentleness and reverence. Now what I've noticed in life is oftentimes when a person doesn't really hold to their convictions, they're really not sure of what they're saying, oftentimes they become belligerent and loud. Have you seen that? Sometimes the person who's, who's really getting angry at you, the reason, and he's getting very loud and boisterous in refuting you, is because he or she he doesn't really have that strong of a hold on them. It's like the pastor who knew his sermon was weak. And so in several places he, he wrote down in his notes, pound the pulpit and get loud. Now, I only do that when I see you guys falling asleep. 
But then again, that might be the same issue. (laughs) With gentleness and reverence. Now the last outward response is found in verses 16 and 17. Notice it says, and keep a good conscience. Now you think, well, wait a minute, that's inward. No, no, no. A good conscience is caused by your good behavior. Did you notice that? And keep a good conscience so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your, your good behavior. See, how you have a good conscience, <laughs> a clear conscience, you know how you have a clear conscience, a good conscience? I got nothing to hide. I'm living the life. I'm doing it. I can look myself in the mirror. I can look everybody else in the mirror in, in the face. And I'm, I'm living a life. I'm not living a double life. I got a clear conscience. Now, when you do wrong, you can still have a good conscience. Why? You go back. You repent. <laughs> you ask for forgiveness. You make restitution if it's needed. You get things right. And therefore, if you hurt somebody, but you made it right, you can look them, shake them in the hand and say, so glad to see you. Got a clear conscience, a good conscience. And that kind of person, look what it says, puts them to shame. Because they don't have a clear conscience. And then he sums up in verse 17. He says, here it is. For if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for what is doing wrong. It's better that you suffer for doing right rather than as a Christian. (laughs) Okay, say you're suffering this morning and the reason you're suffering is because you're a real bum and you've not been a real good witness and you're suffering for it. Well, don't, don't be saying, I'm suffering for Jesus. You're not suffering for Jesus. You're suffering because you haven't got your act together. Much better to suffer for doing good. Okay, so we've looked at doing good. We've looked at the benefits and then the exceptions. Let me see if I can pull this together in the three negative minutes that I have left. (laughs) This morning, I really struggled with telling you that story about what I tried to do that married lady years ago. Not something that I was really proud of. Now, some might think, well, man, Pastor Neil was a real bum. I really wasn't. I was a nice guy. But you know what the problem was? I was lost. I was lost. And my sinful nature just had total control and led and guided me wherever... It wanted to go. But here's the point. Jesus Christ came into my life and gave me a reason, listen carefully, and the power, the reason and the power to do what's written in verse 8 of chapter 3, being sympathetic, harmonious, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, rather than being what's found in chapter 2, verse 1, being filled with malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Now, my dear Christian friends, 
How are you allowing these two aspects of doing good to work in your life? Let them have the full work that needs to take place. For my non-Christian friend, you need Jesus in your life. You can't do, you can't do chapter 3, verse 8 and 9 without Christ. Now you're saying, well, you know, uh, I, I'm, I certainly was, I would never do what you did, Neil. And that's a good possibility. But there's other things. There are secrets that you're aware of late at night that you're ashamed of, things that you've done. Or perhaps, even perhaps, you've even done worse. Let me read you a passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, or idolaters, or feminine, or homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the verse. But such were some of you. But you were washed, but you're sanctified. You are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Here's the point. My non-Christian friend, you're sitting with a bunch of sinners. What is Paul? He said to the Corinthian church, he lists all these terrible things. Ah, I can't believe he said it. And then he points to the Corinthian church and he says, guess what? Such were some of you. And I'll start right at the right hand and go all the way over to this wall. And such were some of you. My non-Christian friend, you're sitting among people who are just like you. Except Three things. But were you washed, cleansed of your guilt? But you were sanctified, set apart, and have you been justified? You know what justified means? Declared not guilty. Do you have that? Do you have that? I'll give you an opportunity in just a few minutes to discover that. Let's pray. Father, we so thank you for the Word of God and how it speaks to each person here, whether we be Christian or whether we're still thinking about developing a relationship with God. I pray that the words of the Bible might minister to each person here. In Jesus' name, amen.